BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Friend of a Friend podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Perez. I hope you're all doing well and excited for a great week ahead. Happy Monday. I'm so excited to kick off your week with our ninth episode featuring Sammy Miro, entrepreneur, stylist, and founder of Sammy Miro Vintage. Sammy grew up in San Francisco and moved to Los Angeles after getting her bachelor's degree in marketing and master's in global entrepreneurship. Combining her love of the vintage shopping hunt and dedication to sustainability, she launched Sammy Miro Vintage in 2016, an eco-conscious clothing line specializing in sourcing and reconstructing one-of-a-kind vintage garments curated from around the world. She has since styled Selena Gomez's revival tour and become a street style staple, seen on a myriad of celebrity clients like Bella Hadid, The Kardashians, Haley Baldwin, Jaina Eco, and more. This year, she launched her first cut and sew collection titled Eco Terror, a collection that aimed to show that fashion can be both sustainable and aesthetically pleasing, and it sold out. Sammy's been a dominating force in the fashion industry within a few short years. She just released her first runway collection with Heron Preston in Paris, has worked with brands like Tiffany & Co. and Louis Vuitton, just spoke at Teen Vogue's 2019 Summit, and has been covered on Vogue, High Snobiety, and Forbes. Whether it's her everyday 5 a.m. yoga class coverage, unique style, or behind the scenes of her admirable hustle, Sammy is a force to be reckoned with and is loudly paving the way for the future of sustainable fashion. Here's my friend, Sammy Merrill. Hi, Sammy. Hello, Liv. I'm so happy that you're on the podcast. I'm so happy to be here. It was really funny because when you and I were, like, scheduling this, did you see the comment on your Instagram? No. Oh, yes. It was so weird. Someone so commented on Sammy's Instagram being like, at Liv Perez, please put Sammy on your podcast. And I was like, I'd love to. <laughs> well, first of all, we already made plans to do it. Yes, but it was so. just even, like, cooler that somebody did that. I know. I love yeah. it. She could see the future. She could definitely see the future. But, okay, tell us where you were born and where you live now. I was born in the beautiful city of San Francisco, and now I live in Los Angeles. And I feel like you're still very connected to San Francisco. I have so much San Francisco pride. It's kind of embarrassing. I'm like that embarrassing like cheerleader mom talking about her daughter and how she's the best one. That's me talking about San Francisco. I mean, okay, so that's very maternal of you <laughs> yeah. and very sweet. Yeah, you have like an immense amount of pride for where you came from. And that's like, I do. that's such a cool thing. To Thanks. be able to feel that way. I mean, I love L.A., but I'm not running around being like, fuck yeah, L.A. <laughs> right. You know, I think it really comes with the territory. All of the Bay Area, we're like, we love the Bay. We love all of our friends from the Bay. We are obviously open to people who are not from the Bay, but, like, we just have so much pride being from there. And that's kind of just all I know. So I've never really had this conversation that 
about this, so it is kind of curious. How do you feel like growing up in San Francisco gave you a different perspective on fashion? Ooh, well, uh, San Francisco, no offense. I mean, we started this off right with telling everyone how much I love the Bay, so I feel like I can also talk about its downfalls. San Francisco has a terrible sense of fashion. I'll just tell it like it is. It's like there's kind of like two types of people in San Francisco. There's like the original San Franciscans, like us who are born and raised in San Francisco or in the Bay Area, and kind of like a more like hippie vibe person, but those are dwindling very quickly. There are a few of those now. Now it's basically just like all techie people. Everyone wears like basic uh, like a boot cut jean right. and like a North Face jacket, which is fine. Like there's nothing wrong. We excel tremendously in other areas. We, you know, you can't be good at everything. So it's true. the fashion in the Bay is really bad, but that is where I obtained my love of vintage because we have some of the best vintage shopping there ironically because everyone gives away all of their good clothes and they just right? stick with the north face so. that's so funny mm-hmm. but so you were raised by your dad and you have a brother yes so who was the first person to be like hey let's go vintage shopping i actually was i discovered it on my own which is kind of ironic because my dad is like the guru of ebay he can find anything on eBay for he will find like a $3,000 Armani suit for $5 and it's in perfect condition like still new with tags so I that think, exists <laughs> yeah. he's he's the guy so like he passed that on to me a little bit when it comes to eBay but in terms of like physical shops right by my house there was an American rag it has since been closed, but I think it was, like, one of the—maybe the original American one? Don't. There's one, like, right across the street from us right now. Yeah. That's, isn't that the original? Maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe I'm just like, oh, it's San Francisco, so it Obviously. must be the original. It's fine. This is going to get annoying really quick. Really quick. Nope. Um, I love it. It's fine. <laughs> so, yeah. So when I was about 14 or 15, I went to the American Rag. But to me, the American Rag wasn't attainable because the front half of the store was all, like, the super expensive fancy things. And being a 14, 15-year-old girl, like, I can't buy a $100 T-shirt. So I was with my friend who could. And when we were in there and she was shopping, I went to the back of the store and I was like, holy shit, this is all the version of everything that's cool right now, but everything has holes in it. And that's where, that's how I discovered vintage. It's interesting. Your dad is a professor, right? Mm-hmm. So academia was like very important in your family. Yeah. But I can still see that today. Like, I feel like the one thing you always love to talk about is your college experience. Yeah. How was your household like between like your dad being an academic and your brother's deputy, right? Yeah. So, well, my brother, he was the deputy solicitor general of California. Tongue twister. Over my yeah. head. Uh-huh. And now he works for a firm, but he's still working on like amazing public law type things. Like just, you know, no big deal writing laws for DACA, birth control in California, you know, just doing that. I mean, that's a really like diverse household to grow up in. Yeah. How do you feel like what your dad and what your brother are doing informed what you were doing? Well, two things to address. First, I think that I talk about, like, my background in schooling and my previous experience working, like, in a corporate environment or, like, a tech environment. I talk about that a lot because in the industry that we're in right now, there are very few people who, like, have a normal, you know, background in the 
graduate degree or a master's degree and who like worked in a completely different. So I like to talk about that kind of stuff to show people that like education is still important. When you have something to fall back on, like it makes you more comfortable. Like I want people to go for their dreams, but I want people to be sensible about it. And there's nothing wrong with going to university just because other people are going on a different route like I want to still give support to people who you know don't want to be in a career like that has anything to do with social media and people who want to become doctors or whatever it is like that is still so important that is still so special and so that's kind of like why I talk about that a lot you know I grew up with just my dad and so he like you know, it was like his little daughter and I didn't have a mom. And so he like just wanted to make sure that you know, he definitely babied me is what I'm, I'm getting at. So for me, it was really important to take the time and have that transition of university and grad school and like kind of mature on that sense, like socially, educationally. Some people, though, don't need that. Some people are already there. Some people don't gain anything from college. I have a lot of friends who I've actually, I've never had a boyfriend who ever graduated from college, which is super interesting. But all of them are super smart. Some people just don't need it. Why did you need it? Well, I needed it for that reason to really, like, grow and mature. Imagining, like, 17-year-old Sammy graduating from high school, going straight into the real world. I would have been a mess. I would have been so confused. I wouldn't have known, like, how to do much of what I should have been able to do. So, like, I really needed that extra time. And I also had a learning disability. So it was like, I just needed more time. Did you know what you wanted to do back then? Did you have any idea? Like, was it what I'm doing now? In any stretch or, of the imagination. Yeah, I thought that I was going to go on that traditional San Francisco path of, like, you know, working for some startup or, like, tech company. And my major in undergrad was marketing. So I thought that's what I was going to do, and I was, like, thrilled to do that. It was just didn't turn out that way, really. But I'm happy about it. <laughs> Same. <laughs> so you went to college. Where did you go? And tell us what you studied. Yeah, so I went to Santa Clara University, which is a Jesuit university, kind of like the Northern California version of USC. Okay. SCU, Santa Clara University. Got USC. it. So it was a super small Jesuit university. It's about 50 minutes south of San Francisco. So yeah, and then I majored in marketing with an emphasis on internet marketing, like e-commerce, kind right. of, not in the way that we would think about it now. But then you went on to get your master's in global entrepreneurship. Yeah. So I was in a program and it was through three Jesuit universities. Basically, it was like you live, you work, and you study in Asia, Europe, and America to really understand how business varies in all three of those continents. And so it was three, three Jesuit universities within those three continents. And then so when we were in Asia, we lived in Taiwan, in Taipei. And in Europe, we were in Barcelona. And then in America, we were in San Francisco. That's crazy. Yeah. But such a cool experience to be able to travel and understand business from like a global perspective and see how, because I'm sure that it just operates so differently. Yeah, it does. It's actually crazy to learn all of the way that it works is like, you know, when you're in in Asia, there's the government has a different role than it does right. here, you know, and that's obviously being very general because there's a 
a bunch of countries that make up Asia. But in Taiwan, you know, the government kind of tells you what to do. Businesses have a lot of control over there. They need to work together, essentially. So also, you know, you can't just, this is actually one of the most important things in doing business in Asia. You can't go into, like, let's say you're an American company and you go meet with a Chinese company. You can't just go in there and just start straight talking about business. They have to like you first. So you have to talk about, like, you know, real life things, like having normal conversations. And there's, like, days of doing this. You have to, like, hello, how are you? Like, you cannot, if you mention business within the first period of time, like, it's an immediately, like, get the hell out of here. What was the most important thing that you learned from that time in your life that you feel impacted the way you run your business today? Well, I think in general, what made grad school special to me is the fact that I come from like the way that I was raised. It was like, okay, college was a thing that you have to do. Like it's just, there's no other option. So when I was in undergrad, I was like, you know, your brain is half in it, half out of it. How much do you really remember from undergrad? I remember... Like nothing, right, okay. But when you decide to go to grad school, it's all because you made that decision. So you are so much more present. I went out maybe even though I was like in Barcelona, in Taipei. I went out, I think, when I was in Taiwan like two times ever within a six-month period. It's like you are so in the zone. You want to get straight A's. You want to kick ass in absolutely everything you do. You're also writing a thesis in all of the three places that you're in. And it's like, you remember absolutely, well, not absolutely everything, but you remember so much more when you're in grad school. And it means that much more to you as well. So that part is really interesting. And I think that when we were in Taipei, we had to essentially like create a company. So we did all of the normal steps, like, you know, writing out your like five-year financial plan, like understanding all of the accounting, creating a whole marketing plan, creating an actual product. It was a full thing. So that was so incredible to do back then. And also we're talking about, this was like year 2010. So that wasn't in the years of everyone can be an entrepreneur. That was, like, scary to be an entrepreneur then. So it was really cool to learn, like, from an educational standpoint how to do all of the steps, even though that's not necessarily how I did it when I did start my own company. But it was a very special experience. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if there's anything I regret not doing, it was not going to business school. Because I feel like as an entrepreneur, there are so many things that I overlooked. That what did you study? I studied, so I went to Gallatin at NYU, where they essentially throw you into college and let you make your own major. Literally, like, from, like, the thousands of classes at NYU, it was, like, picking and choosing and making my own schedule. So I studied a little bit of journalism, a little bit of psychology, some fashion, and a little bit of, like, graphic design, all to, like, accumulate into, like, like a digital journalism That's major. Awesome. Yeah, it was cool, but I think it's, like, People really undervalue the definitive skill set that it takes to run a business. Entrepreneurship, I think you're born with. I think you have it in you, and that's like a spirit that people have. But everybody can learn business. Everybody can learn how to run things properly. And I do think if you're an entrepreneur, it's like crucial to go into so that you just don't make these like completely avoidable mistakes. Right. But everyone has to make mistakes in order to get somewhere. So that is unavoidable. But was there no core curriculum? 
So we had a core curriculum, but it was really similar to like a core curriculum in high school. So it was like I had a history, I had a math, I had a science. Like, can I drink this water? Sammy's like, can I drink my water? (laughs) Yes, you can make noise. She's also drinking out of a little canteen. Sustainable 40-ounce canister right now. Mm -hmm. Did you know, I recently learned this is very important for everybody to know, you should be drinking as much ounces in water equal to the amount that you weigh. So, for example, if you weigh 100 pounds, you should be drinking 100 ounces of water every day. Thanks. Factoids from Sammy Miro. Yes. On your Monday. (laughs) (laughs) But so after you did entrepreneurship, you went on to a tech startup. Well, actually, when in this grad program, we first were in Barcelona, then we went to Taipei, and we finished in San Francisco. And in San Francisco, I was, as part of the program, I was interning for this startup. Got it. And when I was interning for it, it was like literally two founders who just came up with an idea. No name, no product, no nothing, no business plan finished. And so like my project in the internship was to write a marketing plan. And I had, it was like me and two or three, three others in my program. And we wrote a marketing plan and they ended up hiring three of us from that team after. So it was like we were there from ground zero. Like we were working in one of the founders' apartments to make it. It was like, yeah, it was so cool. We were there to create the name. We worked on like the first prototypes, the branding, everything. So it was, and then I was there for four years. So by the time I left, it was a full like global company. Please tell me you have stock options in that. I actually do. Yes. And they fully vested before I left. So. Wow. Good for you. But the company went under. I'm sorry. It was sold. You know, after I left, it kind of, you know, went to the shitter. Of course. (laughs) Obviously, because of my departure. Just kidding. Oh, Um, my God. If I knew about the idea of stock options when I was in college and interning. I'd probably be a very different person today. (laughs) If you're in college right now and you're interning for a startup, please, please do yourself a favor and ask for stock options. It's really important. Yes. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so then you left, you moved to Los Angeles, and you started Sammy Mirror Vintage. I always think it's so interesting when people are in tech or they're in a corporate setting and they, like, have this intuition to get up, leave, and start their own thing. What was that moment? What drove you to do it? I actually moved to L.A. while I was still working for that company. Okay. And I my job with them required weekly travel, so I didn't have to be in the headquarters because I wasn't there anyway. So they were like, you can move to any metropolitan city as long as you're by, you know, big airport. Cool. And so I was like, I will take advantage of this and move elsewhere. So I decided to move to Los Angeles and in doing so met people in a variety of different creative industries. So people who like knew about fashion, they're like, your clothes are really sick. Like, why don't you try styling? And I was like, what is styling? They were like, it's where someone brings clothing and puts it on other people in a photo shoot, for example. And I was like, that is weird. I didn't know people needed help getting dressed. That's how far removed from fashion I was. What did you wear to your tech startup every day? Oh, the same. Same clothes that I wear now. Wow. I was in such a—it was so funny because not only was I a woman in a man-heavy environment, I was also a non-white woman, and I was also like— a weird vintage girl, and I was also much younger than everybody else. 
How did you navigate that environment? I'm used to being in that kind of environment. I always went to like private schools and I was the typically the only non-white person at those private schools. And typically I was one of the few there on like a scholarship. So that was just what I was used to. And I kind of like, and also I was raised by a dad and I have an older brother. So I was like used to being around guys, used to being the only like different one around and kind of like excel in that environment. So it was fine. I love to hear that you excel in your difference. That's yeah. cool. That in and of itself is so crazy to me. Just like the like not even being aware that like you were dressing in a different way. Yeah. Well, no, I was aware that I was dressing in a different way. And I was aware that like I loved vintage so much and that it meant a lot to me. But I wasn't aware that it would eventually or could eventually become my career path. Because right. I didn't know anything about the fashion industry. I didn't know. Like I was so far removed that I didn't even think as far as like, oh, I could create a company and make money in fashion. It was just like my brain didn't even go there. So when I moved to L.A. and people were kind of pushing me to do more creative things, when I was still working for that tech company, on the weekends, I would be the coffee runner at a magazine photo shoot. And I would like maybe I would get paid, I don't know, zero to like $100 a day or something, whatever the minimum is. And I would be like the styling assistants, 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 assistants at this big photo shoot to kind of just learn like, oh, what is fashion? Like, what are these brands out there? How does it all go down? And getting like a little taste of that. And then I immediately would just do photo shoots on my own with use my friends as models. Had no idea what I was doing, but like, I had lived enough life to figure things out at that point. So then I just realized that there was something super creative in me that was dormant because I wasn't able to express it while I was in San Francisco. And I was like, let's just go for it. So I was like, hey, dad, I'm going to quit my salary job with healthcare, And I'm just going to like go for something that I don't even know what it is that I want to do yet. And I'm just going to do it. And my whole family was like, what are you doing? How can you quit a job without already having another job lined up? You know, so they all thought I was crazy, but now they're very proud of me. What did you do in that time to have some sort of stability? Well, I saved money from... Okay. Yeah. So that was applicable. Mm -hmm. I always think it's good feedback for people to know that are just moving to a new city and are looking to maybe go into a different career what went into you meeting new people, specifically, like, creative people that put you in the position to, like, be on those photo shoots? Because I always get asked that question. It's like, how did you get to that point? Like, you're not just walking on the street and you meet somebody that's going to get you a photo shoot. What was, like, your networking hack during that time? It was all just luck, to be honest. And I took an opportunity, I think, how—it's funny that you ask because I haven't thought about this in— since it happened but I was friends with do you know Dylan Penn yes she's yeah so she was my friend she and I worked together in New York very briefly and she was living here and she was doing a photo shoot she was like do you want to come with me like since you're interested in learning about fashion I was like hell yeah so I just went to this photo shoot with her and she was like you should talk to the stylist and like say you want to work and I was like so shy supportive friends are (laughs) the best (laughs) yes that's so awesome. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And so I was like, all awkwardly at the end of the photo shoot, it was like my last chance. <laughs> I was like, so like, like, if Sammy. you ever like need an assistant or anything, like I would 
love to help you. And she was like, uh, actually, yes, I do. I have something coming up next week and I need help. And I was like, holy shit. Put yourself out there. You I- have to put yourself out there because what do you have to lose? Nothing. I also say this so often. People can't picture you in the position that you want to be in if you don't show them that you can be in that position. So it's yeah. like you could be standing in a room and the stylist would not know that they could use you if you didn't put yourself in the position to be used like that. Yeah. So it's like good for you for having the, the courage to go up to her and be like, hey, I want to do this. It took a lot. I was probably – my aunt, palms were probably very sweaty. But, <laughs> but I did it. <laughs> How did you get your first client? Okay, so basically, I took like a year and a half, tried different styling jobs. I produced my own photo shoots with my vintage pieces, and I tested out some modeling jobs. And then I, while exploring this new world, I was, had an inkling. I'm like, okay, I think I actually have a point of view in fashion, and I think that I could at some point when I'm ready, create a clothing company. But because I'm just all about authenticity and staying true to my roots, I knew that vintage would have had to been the main factor, vintage sustainability. That would have to be, like, the brand. But back then, no one was, like, reworking vintage. It wasn't a thing. And so it wasn't until I had an epiphany how to create a new company out of something old. I was styling somebody for the TV movie awards and they wanted me to just, you know, like go pull a bunch of stuff like a stylist would normally do. But I was like, you know what? I have this idea. I started sketching things out and I created one of the first pieces from my first drop, which was a bomber made from patchwork Levi's jeans and so I made that piece and then while doing that I was like holy shit this is what Sammy Miro vintage is and it might now just seem like such a funny thing because so many people do that but it wasn't a thing back then so from the day that I sketched the first piece nothing was even made and the client approved the item to get made I had 10 days from that point until the MTV movie awards and I was like i figured out what I'm going to do, what my purpose is, what my point of view is. I have 10 days to create a collection, figure out manufacturing, make my first website, produce a photo shoot, find a photographer, videographer, models, design more pieces, find fabrics, get the production going. I had 10 days to do all of that. And I did it. And I... How did you do it? I just did it all by myself. I just did it. (laughs) I did it. I asked around. I had one friend who worked in a showroom, and I was like, hey, do you know anybody who knows an embroiderer? And they were like, oh, yeah, I have a friend who has a clothing company. Here's his number. And that guy gave me the name of his embroiderer. So I went there. And then, like, from there, just, like, ask the next person, where can I find this? Where can I find that? And then, I mean, I spent, like, every second of every day doing it to get it done. And that's how I did it. That's amazing. I usually feel like the best things happen in moments like that. Do you find that you work best under pressure? Hell yeah, I do. For sure. But it's also really nice when you have a lot of time to make things happen, which is rare. But right now I'm in that position. We're working on our next collection and we're like, wow, we have so many months and we're just so far ahead of schedule. We've never experienced this before. That's awesome. I really like what you were saying earlier about 
realizing that you had this different perspective in fashion, do you think it was difficult for you to begin to trust your own opinion? Yeah, I think that is the scary thing of entrepreneurship in general because you're creating something, whether it's a physical product or or a service or whatever it is. And it's like, is this just in my head? Am I the only one who thinks this is going to be good? So it's always important before actually putting all of your time and money into something is just asking as many people as like pitching your idea to everybody. And if the consensus, if 100 out of 100 people say it's not a good idea, you might want to rework it, tweak it or move on to something else just putting that out there maybe maybe not but for me it was just like I started it and I immediately it was received super well by a lot of like influential people so I was like okay holy crap like I might have a point of view being a girl who knows nothing about fashion from a a learned standpoint like this all is just coming from my heart so it's like it was just so weird and satisfying and amazing and exciting for me to get to know that, okay, wait, I have something here. So now we're three years later, almost yeah. three years. Mm-hmm. Explain to us your current business model. Oh, my current business model. Well, I think it's kind of ever-changing. I think it, In its current form. To touch on that really quickly, I think that a lot of people are like, okay, what's your five-year plan? I definitely didn't ask that because I would never ask you such a question and put you in a box like that. Thank you. I would never. That's like a P.S. to anybody ever asking people questions, specifically me. Don't <laughs> ask me what my five-year plan is. Or Sammy Miro. Yeah, or, or me. Because, you know, even before this Instagram world that we live in, and while technology is just changing at a pace that we couldn't even have ever imagined even just like from being an 18 year old to being a 22 year old so much of what I thought I was going to do had changed and to me it's just all about being open to new opportunities and taking every opportunity that you can because especially at a young age you're still learning about yourself like you don't for sure know that you wanted when you're 17 that you're career path for your life is in marketing. Some people are lucky enough to know that, and that's so sick. But a lot of people don't know. I mean, so much changes in life. So I always think it's important to be open to new things in life. A hundred percent. Yeah. So in terms of SMV, I mean, it's still... Like, when I started it, it was a passion project. It was like, okay, what am I going to do as an entrepreneur? And I'm also learning about the fashion industry. And because I was self-funded, I was like, I obviously want to be intelligent in how I'm spending my money in, in an industry that I've never been in. I want to move super, super slowly. So I did because I also wanted to learn about all of the aspects of how the business works instead of like getting a backer and then not understanding how the whole production side works, not understanding how, you know, different fabrics will change the pattern of a garment, you know, so all of those little specificities I wanted to be on top of and be able to speak to. So still we are super small. It's me and my girl Ashley. Shout out Ashley. (laughs) Shout out to Ashley. And yeah, we kind of are just like two girls handling everything. I have so many collaborations coming up as well and just a new kind of model of I'm going to be dropping my one of ones finally on my website. So like I'm when I like say business modeling, it's like Mm -hmm. what are the 
like divisions of SMB. So you have like mm. the styling side, you have like the one of ones, the customs. Like what are the components of like what makes SMB SMB today? I have my one of one side where at all times I'll have you know, hundreds and hundreds of one of a kind vintage pieces that I personally source from all over the world. And I find these unique pieces, buy them, rework them, put my signature stamp on them, which typically includes vintage denim patch or, you know, a specific like cut, frame, shaping, taking a lot of men's pieces and turning them into women's. So we have the one of one side. Then we have the collection side. And that is essentially just a normal collection like every other brand out there. However, all of our fabrics are made from upcycled fabrics. So we are a sustainable company, whether we have the vintage side or the new collection side. Back to the Hair and Preston collaboration. Mm -hmm. So that revealed itself in July in yes. Paris during Men's Fashion Week. How did you identify that that would be a good partnership between the two of you? I know you're old friends, but I always like to hear valuable feedback when it comes to like identifying what a good partnership would look like. Yeah, so actually Sabrina, his girlfriend, brought us together because Sabrina and I became super quick friends. She is like one of the most special humans in the world. Like she is like the definition of a ride or die. If she's so real and if she loves you, like she will be there for life. She's just so wonderful. And she knows that Sammy Miro Vintage is all about sustainability. And she knows that Heron is all about that, too. And he is changing his structure a little bit to incorporate more of that. So he, she was like, you need to work with Sammy. It was a long process. Like, first it was like, I think you guys should work together. And in my head, I'm like, whoa, you know, that's like a really big deal. I'm a realist. I don't believe anything happens and is going to happen until the contract is signed. I don't want to get my hopes up. So it was like, started off as something really small. Like, first we were just going to do a pop-up in New York with like, create like one of ones together and just do a pop-up. And then when his team heard about, you know, our potential collaboration and, like, saw, like, the sketches and the ideas, they were like, wait, this is actually really cool. Let's take this to the next level and let's do, like, a dinner and a small little uh, reproduced collection. And then it went another step, turned into a bigger thing. Then they're like, actually, let's make this a runway collab. And so then it's became, like, a 30-piece collaboration and yeah, we had a bunch of pieces walking down the runway. It was so cool. I never expected or even necessarily wanted like to have a runway show. Not that this was my show, but it was just like I had to hold back tears for sure when I was watching it go down. Totally. I mean, that's a huge moment just from building your own company to then seeing it on the runway during Men's Fashion Week in Paris. And it's on the huge. scale of like what Heron can produce. Absolutely. Like, this is a real runway show. <laughs> But also looking at it in retrospect, I mean, you are a self-founded, self-funded company that you run yourself. And Heron, it's not on a corporate level, but it definitely is on a little bit more of a mass scale. Is that commercial aspect important to you? I think that if you want to be a successful money-making machine, it has to be. I think for me, what I want to do is have options for more commercial girl and have options for your niche girl. 
because that's, I mean, I'm your, Sammy Mirror Vintage is for your niche girl. But I think it's important to expand a little bit and make, you know, some simple pieces that everyone can enjoy, especially because of the education that the sustainability does play into it and to, you know, like teach girls who may just be buying like Zara or Forever 21 and like show them that it's also important and that the quality level is one thing about the pieces from my collection, like the the fabrics that I upcycle, they're really good quality. So it's like my tank tops, like the one that you own. Oh my God. <laughs> Let me tell you guys, the softest butter cloud tank top I've ever worn in my whole life <laughs> is an SMV tank top. Thank you, Liv. It's also important because we're kind of like crossing the lines of like one SMV or even just like a year ago, if you were a sustainable clothing brand, like you probably were just, you know, t-shirt, sweatshirt, and it was like, it looked like it was a sustainable brand. I mean, Sammy and I were in Miami a year ago, and I wore probably one of my favorite dresses I've ever worn in my whole life, <laughs> the velvet one. Yes, I remember you looked amazing in it. What a night. We had fun. We, had we, went on, we had a date night. Yeah. We ended up at 11. <laughs> well, we ended up looking at 11. <laughs> We didn't go. We just took a selfie in front of it. I promise I remember that. (laughs) (laughs) And then we ordered chicken fingers. Oh, my God. I want chicken fingers. But back to the point of bringing that up, (laughs) the dress was amazing. And I think it's to your point of saying that this whole stigma of being sustainable and upcycled, I think that there is an unfortunate stigma against it that you can't also be wearing something cute at the same time. Right. Yeah. That's kind of like the whole... Thing behind SMV is like you can be that cool, sustainable, like green, eco-conscious, let's save the planet girl, but you can also do that while looking super sick and sexy. And it's amazing to see you penetrate again more commercial entities with what you're doing, aka Heron. I mean, you also did Selena's revival tour, which is yeah. mind blowing. What was that process like? That was insane. That Did was you find like, out about it like two days before? Yeah. One of my best friends, Teresa, she was Selena's assistant for several years. And this was like maybe within year one of her working for her. But I had just launched SMV. And I made this bodysuit. It was like mesh bodysuit with vintage denim patch over the breasts, like super sexy. And Selena saw them and was like, like, can you send me this? And I was like, uh, yeah. I literally had one prototype. <laughs> and I was like, I just like gave her the prototypes. You're like, she like take needed everything. it stacked. She was leaving for tour. I was like, oh my God, I gotta get it to her. And she wore the bodysuit. She like did a whole photo shoot for it. It was so sweet and cute. And then she left for tour. She did America and she did Europe. And Teresa had a little barbecue and Selena was there and she was like, I'm going about to leave for Asia. I want to revamp my tour attire because usually people go on tour. They wear like five looks for an entire year. She was kind of over it, I guess, and she wanted to switch it up. And she was like, by the time I do... Europe. So, like, we're going to do Asia, and then we're going to do Europe. By the time I do Europe, like, I want you to have designed a bunch of stuff for me. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, I don't even know what I'm doing. Like, I literally just designed my first item of clothing. So, again, I was like, okay, yeah, sure, we'll see it. I'll believe it when I see it. A week later, I get a call from Teresa, and she's like, hey, it's me and Selena. She wants to talk to you. And then Selena's like, hey, I need you to come to Asia right now. Bring everything. She's like, I'm flying you in two days or less than two days. I was like, 
uh, what? Like, I had never styled anyone on stage. I don't think I ever styled a celebrity or, like, anyone on a big scale like that. I was like, what the hell am I supposed to do? I didn't know exactly what I was going to be styling, if it was going to be, like, her stage looks, her, like, airport looks, like, going out looks. But she said bring everything. So I had two interns at the time. My interns and I packed the shit up out of everything that I had. I brought like over 500 things, articles of clothing with me, including shoes. We brought it all over. And I would like to say that this was one of the first, if not the first tours where the looks changed every single night. So it was like every day we did fittings and every day she wore different looks on stage. I think only two looks she continued during the Asia tour, but three to four looks changed every single night. I don't think that had ever been done before. And it was just so cool because, like, she was in Asia, so she wanted to be, like, cool, fun, vintage, and she killed it. She looked so sexy and, like, such a badass. And I still meet people today, and they were like, oh, wow, you, like they still remember certain looks or like she did an all leather look and like she just looked like such a badass. So it's fun when you get to work with people who want to step outside or like want you to help them learn how to like take it to the next level while also, of course, maintaining their look. You know, you don't want to make them look like someone else. You just want to you want to make them look like them, but just a badass version of them. That must have been like a crazy trust your gut moment. Yeah, I was like, what the hell? Like, I had no, like, I literally, I had never done this before. And now here we are. (laughs) And I recently saw in an interview, Risa said that she would love to have SMV on Revolve. Yeah, that That was was crazy. crazy. I know, I DM'd her and I was like, hi, you have my number. What's going on, Risa? (laughs) There you go. You go from, (laughs) from being pulled across the world to style a show, and now one of the biggest retailers wants you to be sold. I know. Would you consider merging into retailers like that? I think so, for sure. I mean, like, Forward is amazing. Right. Forward is incredible, one of the best out there for luxury brands. And again, I mean, I think that it would be sick to do, I don't know if my brand, where it is right now, would be perfect for Evolve, but it would be cool to do a capsule collection. I was going to say, I think, like, your brand ethos will forever stay, like, in your terrain, but you do a really good job of, like, branching out and creating moments for other people that bring them into your world and not the other way around. Ooh, that was very eloquently put. I love that. That was deep. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, you know, like, it is your world. Like, you want people to come into Sammy Miro Vintage's world, not the other way around, because you are so specific, especially when it comes to sustainability, which I'd love to touch on now that we're here. Mm -hmm. I've noticed a shift in your bio to Sammy Miro, impact designer. Tell us what that means. So I recently was a part of a summit in Paris called the Circular Fashion Summit. It was incredible. I mean, they had people from the UN. They had the head of sustainability for Adidas, people from all different types of industry. It wasn't just exclusive to fashion. They called me an impact designer, and I was like, that is amazing. And it essentially just means that you're doing something to positively impact the world. And I just think it's, like, so simply put, and you don't have to—sustainability is, like, the hottest word out there right now. Everyone can use it in a in a sentence that's relevant to what it is that they're doing. And so I like that. Like, it's a very strong, fresh way to kind of say that I'm being sustainable, but, you know, 
just doing it. I'm an impact designer. Finally, she gets a label. She gets a a box to check. It's hard, and it's hard in our industry. Let me tell you, to like find something that ac- you feel accurately represents you, mm-hmm. and you're okay with like being labeled as that. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. But so, on the topic of sustainability, what are some of the biggest challenges that you're facing right now in your business with maintaining that sustainability? When you are a sustainable clothing company, you have to do everything differently. You have to think about everything differently. You can't just go find your favorite fabric, take it to the dye house, wash it. There are so many terrible things that are involved in every step of fashion. Like, for example, finding your favorite fabric. Step one is you find your favorite fabric. Then you work with a company that's going to create that favorite fabric, which means that they are going to make it, add more fabric to the world that will potentially get wasted. When you take your fabric to the dye house, all of the water that goes into washing and dyeing these garments, it's just, it's horrible. It's insane how much water is used. Also, the toxins that they use to dye the fabrics are extremely deadly. So, and I could keep going on and on. So when you are a sustainable company, things get more expensive. Like if you want to dye something, you have to spend a lot more money to do it ethically. And also your fabrics are limited. So for me, I use, like I said, upcycled fabrics. So that just means fabrics that other brands made and then they didn't use it. So they sold it to fabric place that sells upcycled fabrics. So that means that I can only make things within that selection. So I can't just like dream up the perfect fabric. I have to only use what's there. And then there's the issue of... You know, let's say you buy all of the fabric and then you have a demand for more, but that fabric's all gone. So you should have luck, basically. So there is a lot that goes into it, but to me, it's just, it's still worth it. And I don't care. And I'm going to be me all the way, even if it's giving me an ulcer. (laughs) God forbid. But it's also, I think it's just zooming out for a second. It's also important from like a brand responsibility perspective where it's like you're also training your customer to understand that like the planet first, not what we want first in terms of what we're wearing. Like what can the planet provide us that we can put on our bodies and not like what you can just like find and use and use all these like toxic materials. Right. So it's difficult. But being in the fashion industry and being a brand that is custom, like it must be also very daunting to see brands like Zach Posen close down who are like founded on – being custom. I mean, not that Zach was sustainable, but having a clothing brand, it must also be scary sometimes to see big houses that are like pillars of the fashion industry close. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think absolutely. But that happens with every industry too. Just because you build it doesn't mean it's going to be there forever. And that's something that's also scary when being an entrepreneur because you can only relish in your successes for about 0.5 seconds before you're like, okay, shit, what's next? What am I going to be doing next? What's the next big thing that I can push? But yeah, it's a very scary thing. I think that's also why I'm shifting my model to add more pieces that are like relevant for everyday kind of girl. And I think that it's important to like have a good combination of things. But yeah, I mean, being an entrepreneur is scary. Having a company is scary. You have to just 
stay on top of it. Take it day by day. Yeah. What do you wish you could be doing more of in the sustainability space? I love doing collaborations like the one that I did with Heron. I actually did a collab with Nike briefly. I would love to do more collaborations with big brands like Nike and things like that that need help in that space and even though I'm such like a teeny brand compared to them bringing a brand on like SMV even though I'm just a spec compared to them it would be different if they worked with like a small sustainable brand and did a collaboration with a small sustainable brand and also added a sustainable aspect to their business instead of just like oh now we're starting a green line because still I don't know for me I still don't trust that right but if they worked with someone who like really knows what they're doing in that world and then it would just give me like a more depth I'm not explaining this well at all no I mean it's at least what it feels you're trying to get at is fashion sometimes seems very temporary and in the moment you want to do collaborations that will change the infrastructure of brands moving forward and not just be a flash in the pan yes very well put again in (laughs) in your opinion do you think now is a good time to be in fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think that the barriers of entry in fashion are so low, meaning that anyone can start a fashion brand. It's so easy in terms of like, especially in Los Angeles, there's a huge fashion district. And in New York, you can go buy the fabric, you can find a pattern maker, you can scratch up some designs, you can build a website. Like, it's easy to do it. And I think it's really cool because it gives all of these creative minds the ability to, like, put their ideas out there. So it's definitely, like, a big moment right now for people to start their clothing brands. Good or bad, who knows? And I also would, like, love to hear your perspective as a woman of color in the industry. There have been so many initiatives and there has been progress made, but dealing with things like... Kirby from Pierre Moss yeah. and the business of fashion that happened recently. Do you feel like there has been progress in the industry? I mean, no. <laughs> I think that when a person or a group of people are trendy or cool in the moment, the fashion community will get behind that. Does that mean that they really? are all about the black community and all of these musicians and people and do they really fully love them or do they pick them because they are trendy right now? Probably because they are trendy. I think that racism is so ever-present in our world in a way that most people don't even understand. That like I did in the in January of this year, I did a job with Kirby and ASAP Ferg for Hennessy, and it was for Black History Month. And we basically just sat at a round table and talked about like what it's like being black, what was like being black growing up, what it's like in our current industries. And Kirby said something that blew my mind, blew my mind. So he said that when he started Pure Moss, he didn't want anybody to know what he looked like. So he never like did photo shoots or anything. He was just Kirby from Pure Moss. 
Piramas at that point was like, you know, they're making beautiful gowns and like such luxurious stuff. He was getting compared to like Margiela and like luxury fashion houses. Then like it was like year three, I think he said. He did his first photo shoot. Then the world knew he was a black man. Piramas suddenly became a streetwear brand. And it's fucking crazy. And it's like, I don't think that people are doing it like vindictively or they're like, oh, like black, that means streetwear. But it's just like the way that people think. Like even yesterday, for example, I was on a photo shoot and I had like, we did my hair like, like Diana Ross, like huge, crazy, like amazing, long ass, like fluffy curls. And I was like drenched in pearls. I was like, you know, looking like fairly elegant. And the stylist goes, <laughs> she was like, you look so elegant and cool, but you know, like still very street. And I'm like, really? Like what? Cause I'm black. Like I have to be street. Like, what part of me is street, like, live for us? Like, what part of me is street? Like, no, it's just because of the color of my skin. So it's just, like, it's just, it's crazy. I could talk about this forever. Like, and it's not that these people are racist. They're just ignorant. They just don't know, like, what other word to use. They don't know that that is offensive. That, like, would she say to a blonde girl, like, oh, yeah, but you still look street? Maybe, but probably not. You know, so it's, like, there's so many things out there. And, like, Virgil creating what he created has definitely given other black people an opportunity to like be in the limelight but do I think that people are now like oh let me learn up about like black history or like let me like try and understand these different perspectives no I just think that there's a lot of cool black people being given the time of day but I think that the industry is still the same facts long-winded answer no, there that we go a, that was a great answer and I think it's unfortunate how much and I don't mean to compare racism and any other issue like global issue we're having right now but I think that there is this horrible motive right now of just checking a box whether it's like oh we're checking the box of sustainability we're checking the box yeah. of inclusion and it's like it's so obvious when people aren't doing things in a meaningful way that will actually systemically fix what's going on in the world. Yeah, it's like putting a Band-Aid on something. Right. And, it, the, you know, you're going to get sweaty and the Band-Aid's going to fall off eventually. So <laughs> it's definitely a difficult thing to watch. But yeah. do you think you're a competitive person? Hell yeah. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> but, you know, some people don't want to think that they're competitive. Competitive in some things. Like a lot of people, like when you're in a similar industry— like, let's say it's acting or modeling or something. Typically, actors, they don't have that many friends. They don't have that many acting friends because they're, like, they are jealous of, like, if, if so-and-so gets the job and they didn't get it. But I, so I'm competitive in some things. But, like, when it comes to my friends getting something, we've even had this conversation. Like, we are so proud when our friends succeed, and there is zero part of me that's like, fuck them, you know? Maybe it's like, oh, damn, like, now I need to work my ass off more, you know? So, like, yeah, I, can, I can be like that. But I'm, like, clapping my hands in my office by myself, you know? Like, it makes me super proud. So I am competitive with some things, but, like, competing with my friends, never. Mm -mm. And it's interesting. You and I talk about, like, digital personas a lot. I mean, like, you have your business. You have um, your Instagram as well. And you are a very open person. But I do think that, like, who you are on the Internet and who you are in real life are not always the same. No. 
what do you wish your followers knew more about you? I'm the kind of person who has like a small handful of friends and like I just want to hang out with those people and like I don't want to like go out to the club or like go to these like big things and I'm like social but I just I love being in like a close-knit community with like people I love and trust. So when it comes to social media, I don't share everything about myself. I'm not the kind of person like my stories, for example, like I'm usually in the office working. So like I'm not doing stories of like, hey, like this is what it's like to send an email or like check this out because that's me when I'm just like I'm in my business mode. I'm trying to handle shit. I have meetings. I have like a bunch of stuff that I'm doing. So I don't share most of my life. I just share stuff when it's like I'm with other friends who like love doing social media stuff because I also don't want to just like bring out my camera and like do a story with someone I'm not super fucking close with because that just like that's just so not me like that is seems very thirsty and weird to me and like I also don't know like are you comfortable being on the camera you know I'm just weird about it in general I share some parts about myself but I'm very private in a lot of ways how was the NPR summit how I built this what was, like, the big takeaway from that? Because, like, Ooh, obviously on one. on this podcast, we love how I built this. So give us the First of all, I was so honored. I think I teared up when I got an email from NPR saying, hey, we would love for you to attend the summit. Sammy's also a massive NPR fan. Huge NPR fan. Love it so much. Love public radio. Everyone should donate to NPR and public radios out there. <laughs> anyway. I mean, we donate to journalism. That is what keeps us alive over exactly. here. We love it. Mm-hmm. So I was super excited. I was amongst, like, you know, like I was there with, like, the founder of billion-dollar companies. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm just Sammy from SMV. Like, what the hell am I doing there? But it was so cool. And what I just said will tie into my lesson. It was so amazing. Like I got to watch all of these talks, like learned so much from people who are just like badasses in their industries. One woman said something that will forever stick by me and I always try and share this. I'm excited that you asked me this question. Two things. One, I was a part of a summit that was all about elevator pitches. So everyone who was there had a company and they were practicing in small groups how to pitch. Then they got on stage and pitched their elevator pitches. So one woman said that you are unique and you are starting a company. You are essentially the face of the company when it comes to pitching, when it comes to speaking to people about what your idea is all about. So you need to pitch like you. Don't try and pitch like Mark Zuckerberg do it in your own way because it won't be authentic. It won't have the quirks and unique things in there that are what make you special. So that's one thing. A second thing is my favorite one. And that's what ties into what I said earlier about how I was amongst all of these great CEOs. And then there was just little old me. If you find yourself in a room with huge power players, it is intimidating as fuck. I was so intimidated. I was like, are you like, oh, hello, are you sure? Like, why am I here? <laughs> I was nervous. If you find yourself in a room with people who are like super impressive, know that you are there for a reason. 
you're not just there because you walked in on the street. You were invited to this. Yeah, you might be down there with a room of people who are up there, but they had to start from somewhere. And you were invited for a reason. So you need to tell yourself that and have that confidence when you're in a situation like that. And I just thought that just really spoke to me, especially in that moment when I was feeling that way. But I think that's just something that everybody, no matter what your world is, that you can take that away. Like, for example, you and I, like if we're at a fashion week thing and, and you know, like, and there are people like, you know, that are way cooler than us. <laughs> sure. <laughs> then, you and know, Sammy and I are side-eyeing each other. <laughs> It's fine. You're there for a reason. You were invited to that show for a reason. You are amazing. And You're doing you great, sweetie. <laughs> what is your biggest professional insecurity? I don't know that I really have. Well, I'm sure I have one, but I can't think of it right now. But what it used to be was just that I didn't have a brain. So that was like why I always talked about my background because I'm like, hey guys, like I'm not just a Instagram person. Like I'm so much deeper than that. Like that's not even the real me. There this is the real me, you know? I think it's fair to say that like that's still a thing you probably think about today. Yeah. So I guess that yeah, is an Instagram. That is still. a stigma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. How about so. you? Definitely something to do with that too. Um yeah. I think Instagram lets people judge really quickly. Yeah. Like the fact that people look at people's profiles and can feel the right to make an assumption within a split second is something that is really hurtful and like alarming to me, I guess. And yeah, I just want to be known for the work. I hate that we're in an industry where there's a stigma against us for being entrepreneurial female bosses like yeah. that's fucking crazy I hate that I have to like constantly justify what it is that I do right I love this I love being in spaces like this I love storytelling and I'm going to keep doing that until people stop talking to me <laughs> yeah, well you're amazing at it <laughs> thank you I'll never forget our panel oh actually we've been on two panels together I'll be on panels with you for the rest of my life it was I fun. hope so <laughs> so what's next we're going to close it out here but what's next for SMB what can we look forward to obviously the hair and collab is coming out mm -hmm. hair and collabs coming out we have future secret collabs coming out but mostly just that I'm going to be like dropping a lot more things that's awesome yes. can't wait thank you so much for coming on and being really honest and open about all the ups and downs of running a business. We're very grateful to hear your story. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Friend of a Friend. Before you go, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at tiermedia.com. And for more behind the scenes of the show, visit us at friendofafriend.us and follow me at Liv Perez on Instagram. Don't forget the two Vs. See you next week.